0: Welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is associate professor and faculty co-director of the State Democracy Research Initiative, Robert Yablon. Professor Yablon is here today to discuss gerry laundering, his newest article, which was recently published in the NYU Law Review. The article introduces the concept of gerrymandering to best describe mapmakers' efforts to lock in their favorable position by preserving key elements of their existing maps. The article then applies this new term to the existing redistricting discourse to explain how people in power can use this strategy to cement their hold on power in a less radical manner than outright gerrymandering. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Yablon.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: Absolutely. So let's start this discussion by learning a bit more about your background. What's your professional experience? What led you to researching gerrymandering and the newly minted concept of gerry laundering?
1: Well, I have been on the UW Law faculty since 2014, and among other things, I teach the Law of Democracy, which involves voting rights, campaign finance, uh, the legal status of political parties, and redistricting. Um, And redistricting has obviously been a high profile issue in Wisconsin in particular. We've had litigation in recent years over partisan gerrymandering in the state, which went all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And the past couple of years, um, we've been in the midst of a redistricting cycle. And so it's been a natural time to think about redistricting. you know, and uh, and when you think about what's gone on in the past decade plus, I mean, one of the defining characteristics of the post-2010 redistricting cycle was the aggressiveness of some of the gerrymanders that we saw, not just in Wisconsin, but around the country. And as we got into the 2020 cycle, you know, I started thinking about the implications of these aggressive post-2010 gerrymanders. And one implication is that if you've gerrymandered successfully last time around, there's less need for you to reinvent the wheel when it comes time to redistrict. And so you might be able to achieve your goals uh, simply by uh, perpetuating the status quo. And that's where the concept of gerrymandering really came from, the idea that sometimes you can achieve your partisan goals during redistricting not by overhauling a map uh, but but simply continuing a map that's that already um, stacks the deck in your favor
0: great and I just want to mention that that law of democracy class you mentioned is consistently one of the most popular and over waitlisted classes here so I'm always I'm always jealous I didn't get a chance to take it so I'm glad to learn from you now about all this good stuff you're,
1: you're welcome to audit anytime
0: okay I'll, I'll try and fit it in somewhere I appreciate it <laughs> Uh, Let's uh, start to discuss this article in a little more detail. First, by getting a brief overview of the current legal landscape of gerrymandering, you kind of started to discuss that already, but are there recent attempts at gerrymandering any different than those encountered by previous generations of gerrymandering?
1: Sure. Well, so gerrymandering has a deep history. Uh, You know, some listeners are probably aware the term dates back to the early 19th century, uh, where there was some redistricting mischief in the state of Massachusetts. Um, In 1812, the legislature there was in the hands of the Democratic Republican Party, and they were concerned that they were on the verge of losing power to the Federalist Party. And so they overhauled the state's electoral districts in an effort to try to maintain their advantage. And the governor at the time, a guy named Elbridge Gary, signed off on that new Map. And some creative newspaper editors noted that one of the new contorted districts resembled a salamander. And so they dubbed it the Gary Mander. Um, And the rest is history. So this has been going on for more than 200 years. But, you know, gerrymanders in recent years, um, they've grown more sophisticated and more potent. And so in Rucho versus Common Cause, which was the partisan gerrymandering case that reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019, it it involved maps from North Carolina and Maryland, Justice Kagan wrote in her dissent in that case, these are not your grandfathers, let alone the framers, gerrymanders. And, you know, in particular, there, there are a few important differences when we're thinking about gerrymandering today. One one is technology today allows mapmakers to generate and analyze millions of maps to test their potential partisan effects and figure out which ones they think are going to work best. Uh, and they're aided in that effort by the fact that they have Uh, better data than ever before, much more granular data about voter behavior, about demographics, and so on. And so they really are able to predict with more accuracy than they might have in the past um, what effects particular lines will have. And that's all the more so because today we live in an era of pretty polarized politics And that means if partisan affiliations are relatively stable, you can have more confidence from election to election that the districts are not going to change in a significant way in their partisan balance.
0: So what is the difference if gerrymandering has been around for 200 years? What's the difference between gerrymandering and gerrymandering?
1: Right. So, you know, when we think of classic gerrymanders, we we tend to think of situations when maps are being overtly manipulated. So, you know, as in Massachusetts, those in power were overhauling the lines in an effort to try to secure and increase their political advantage. And the idea behind gerrymandering, as I alluded to before, is that when it comes time to redistrict, sometimes those in power don't actually need to engage in an overhaul. Uh, the existing map might be serving them very well. Maybe it's a map that they themselves gerrymandered a decade ago. And so um, they might prefer to just try to perpetuate the existing district boundaries. Now, they can't usually perpetuate them completely because one of the reasons that we have uh, decennial redistricting is to ensure the districts remain equally populated. So the lines need to be tweaked, but um, they can focus on continuity rather than change. They can start with the existing map and they can just shift the lines around slightly to restore population equality without uh, really um, overhauling things completely. And so you know if if gerrymandering is about tilting the playing field, gerrymandering is more about keeping the playing field tilted.
0: Mm. Okay. So they're looking for continuity in an already gerrymandered map is what they're looking for.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. So what type of materials did you draw on in your research? Did these materials that you located suggest gerrymandering is endemic to one particular party?
1: So, uh, you know, part of my research centered on on trying to identify the prevalence of jury laundering as a practice around the country, and so I looked at a, a range of materials. Um, you know, on the more qualitative side of things, I, I looked at legislative materials at local media coverage from around the country, particularly during the post-2010 um, redistricting cycle, you know, trying to see how legislators characterized their work. You know, did they talk about limiting changes from the prior map? Did they talk about trying to, re- you know, minimize the number of people that were shifting between districts, maybe minimize the extent to which um, incumbents were getting paired with one another? Uh, you know, that that is a sign of, uh, of gerrymandering, laundering. So I looked at that. Uh, and then I also, uh, you know, took a more quantitative approach and I looked at census data, um, specifically data compiled by the Missouri Census Data Center, which lets you see population overlap between newly drawn congressional and state legislative districts and their predecessor districts. Uh, and so this is, this is something that's sometimes referred to as core retention. Uh, if a, if a new map takes the old map as its starting point, and just tweaks the lines somewhat, you'll see high core retention rates. On the the other hand, if the map makers weren't trying to preserve the old map and instead they drew the new map from scratch, uh, you'll generally see lower core retention scores. And so, you know, I looked at the relative levels of core retention scores from place to place around the country. Uh, You know, so what I discovered is that jury laundering is is common. you know, uh, for congressional districts, for state legislative districts, and it's not the exclusive domain of a single party. Uh, Both parties do it, it's a common technique when, you know whatever party is in power, you know I would say that in uh, 2020 we probably saw more gerrymandering when Republicans controlled the redistricting process, and that's partly because in 2010 there were more places where Republicans had the opportunity to engage in aggressive gerrymanders. And having done so, and in many cases, those gerrymanders worked very well, they were in a position to, uh, to preserve what they had already gained for themselves. Uh, in 2020, there were more instances actually of Democrats who were engaging in gerrymanders because they may have had opportunities that they didn't have in 2010. And so in places like Illinois or New York, for example, uh, they were trying to overhaul maps and gain seats rather than just preserve what they had before.
0: So in 2030, we could see potentially more gerrymandering from the Democrats since they have done the gerrymandering in 2020. Potentially, they could do gerrymandering laundering if they wanted to preserve the power.
1: The, that's a possibility. Yep.
0: Uh, by the way, I appreciate you discussing all the materials that you pulled on for this. I, my librarian heart sings to hear about the research that you did to hear. So I just wanted to get that in here for sure. Well, the,
1: And the library, of course, was very helpful during the process.
0: Good. You got to the point that I wanted to get to there. Excellent. <laughs> Um, so what are some common techniques that mapmakers use in gerrymandering?
1: Sure. So I mean when we talk about gerrymandering, um, you, you often hear about the techniques of cracking and packing, right? So um mapmakers will sometimes try to advantage one political party by cracking the voters of the other party between multiple districts so that those voters um, aren't sufficiently numerous in any one district to be able to form a majority. So, so that's cracking. Uh, or sometimes they may try to pack the other party's voters. So they jam as many of the other side's voters into one district as they can. So those voters then can't prevail in more districts. right? So, uh, you know, so when we talk about gerrymandering, we're often talking about cracking and packing. Well, with gerry laundering, it's a little bit different because you're trying to preserve a favorable scheme that already exists. You're not affirmatively doing New cracking and packing, you know, maybe that cracking and packing was done in the past. Now, because um, rhymes are apparently helpful in this area of the law, my article refers to the techniques of jury laundering um, as locking and stocking. So, locking means that the map makers are trying to lock in the prior district configurations, populating those new districts with as many residents of the prior districts as they can, given the need to reestablish population equality. Stocking means that they're trying to stock each of those new districts with one and only one existing office holder. So they're trying to avoid instances in which incumbents end up in the same new district and then have to face off with each other uh, during the next election. Interesting.
0: I have to say that rhyming helps in any instance, but especially in law of democracy. So I appreciate the newly minted (laughs) rhyming scheme that you've come up with here. It helped me while I was reading the article. So how have courts reacted to the locking and stocking and cracking and packing, but specifically the locking and stocking of gerry laundering?
1: Yeah, well, well, by and large, you know, courts have been accepting of gerry laundering. I mean, remember that the U.S. Supreme Court has held that federal courts shouldn't even be attempting to curb gerrymandering. They've said that partisan gerrymandering is a non-justiciable political question, again, at least as a federal constitutional matter. And so courts that are declining to do anything about gerrymandering, they're not going to do much about gerrymandering laundering either. And gerry laundering, after all, has this veneer of legitimacy. Right When, when mapmakers gerry launder, they can portray what they're doing as an appropriately restrained approach you know they'll say for example that retaining the cores of prior districts or avoiding contests between incumbents helps to ensure stability helps to preserve the representational links between office holders and their constituents and courts at least sometimes have just accepted these kind of assertions at face value you know th- there have been instances in which courts have described core retention or the avoidance of incumbent pairings as Neutral redistricting principles, even though um, those, uh, th- those techniques do very predictably serve to benefit the, those who are already in power.
0: So is there a time when gerrymandering is appropriate within the designated redistricting laws of estates? So really, is there a le- legal legitimacy to these
1: efforts? So, you know, this, this is something interesting that I found as I was doing my research. I, I surveyed the redistricting laws of all 50 states. And as a legal matter, it turns out that jury laundering is rarely something that is required or even encouraged. So so most of the relevant law here is state law. There are a lot of state constitutions that establish redistricting principles that map makers are supposed to follow. The state constitution might say, for instance, that districts are supposed to be compact or they're supposed to uh, respect political subdivision boundaries. So, you know, you try to keep cities and counties together to the extent that you can, and you don't needlessly divide them. But there are very, very few states that include in their list of required redistricting criteria uh, preserving prior boundaries. In fact, there are only three states that I identified that have constitutional or statutory provisions that even weakly endorse core retention. uh, And there are none that affirmatively encourage incumbency protection. So, you know, in in two of those states, New York and New Mexico, core retention is a discretionary factor that mapmakers may consider, but it's not something that they have to. In Utah, um, preserving the cores of prior districts is is one of a long list of enumerated criteria that mapmakers are supposed to comply with to the extent practicable. But there's no state that really tells mapmakers, you know, you need to start with the old map and maintain, preserve it as much as you can. So uh, when this does happen, mapmakers are really doing it. Uh, it's a discretionary choice. You know, they're not doing it to comply with legal directives.
0: So in the absence of any legal directives, are there any practical or normative reasons for gerry laundering? Can those kind of overrule this lack of legal necessity?
1: Yeah. You know, so uh, I alluded to this uh, a little bit, right? Th- this idea of a veneer of legitimacy. There are things that you can say in favor of jerry laundering that do make some logical sense. But the question is whether those reasons are really good enough to outweigh the concerns that we may have about jerry laundering as a way for those in power to try to entrench themselves. And so, you know, my view is that the rationales uh, in favor of jerry laundering are pretty weak um, you know, so so consider, for example, the argument that preserving old maps can help to ensure stability and respect the uh, existing relationships between representatives and their constituents. Well, stability can have its virtues. I mean, I don't want to deny that. It it is true that representatives uh, often will invest in learning about their district. They'll have uh, knowledge. And that gets disrupted when you redistrict. Similarly, voters may organize on a district level. And redistricting can disrupt their organizational efforts. Right? And, And I really don't mean to diminish any of that. It's a reason why we you probably wouldn't want to redistrict after every election, right? Um, but stability is a value that you try to optimize, not maximize. So, uh, you know, it's not just about stability. Dynamism is also an important value in a political system. You you want to um, give new voices an opportunity to emerge, you want to give new alliances an opportunity to be created. And so, you know, 10 years strikes me as maybe a reasonable balance. Uh, you have existing districts that last for 10 years, and then you have an opportunity through redistricting for a fresh start. And you know the idea of a fresh start, I think, makes sense, especially given that there are all sorts of other ways that our system advantages incumbents and tends to skew toward entrenchment. And, and redistricting is a nice occasion, actually, to introduce a little bit of dynamism and disruption that we might not otherwise have.
0: Interesting. I like that way of looking at it is to introduce the dynamism. So things aren't locked into place. I think people can tend to think of these districts as in one spot, but this allows for a little bit more freedom of movement. So what happens next? What are the implications or consequences of gerrymandering on the upcoming elections and how will courts react to it?
1: One way to think about gerrymandering is that in many uh, instances, it is a way to extend the lifespan of a gerrymander. So, one implication of having gerrymandering is that you will just get more of the same. Uh, you know, we are seeing this right now in Wisconsin. There was a fairly aggressive gerrymander after the 2010 census in the state, and this time around, the uh, redistricting process went to the courts because we had divided government, and there was very active litigation over how the what what kind of a new map the court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, should adopt. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court decided that it would essentially adopt a gerry map. It accepted the arguments from the legislature that the court should uh, choose a map that, uh, that, that minimized changes from the existing gerrymandered map. And, uh, and so for upcoming elections in Wisconsin, we can expect to see the same kinds of partisan balances or imbalances that we've been seeing for the last decade. Right. And there are other states where, uh, you know, the the story is going to be um, fairly similar. Right. Uh, You know, what might courts do about this? Well, you know, it's hard to say. There are some state courts that have become uh, a little bit more active in reining in gerrymanders. Um, we've seen state courts this redistricting cycle in places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New York uh, that have invalidated maps that they um, that they concluded um, were too skewed. Now, that skew may be the product of an overt gerrymander, or it may be a function of a jury launder. Either way, you may have state courts uh, step in. You know, one bit of uncertainty here is that the U.S. Supreme Court this fall is slated to hear a case involving the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. That case is Moore versus Harper. It comes from North Carolina, and uh, it is possible, depending on the result in that case, that it may actually be more difficult, maybe even impossible, for state courts to rein in gerrymandering or gerry laundering for congressional districts. That case, though, um, won't affect what state courts or it shouldn't affect what state courts are able to do with respect to state legislative districts.
0: You kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to dig in a little bit more. Is So what is this dynamic redistricting as opposed to entrenchment? Uh, can dynamic map making help with Jerry Laundered maps then?
1: Right. So, you, you know, my, my article talks a little bit about this notion of dynamic redistricting. and uh, And that's just the notion that redistricting really ought to be thought of as an opportunity for a fresh start. Um, you know, that's, that's not to say that there shouldn't be, or there won't be any continuity between an old map and a new map there often will be, uh, you know, if one of your animating redistricting principles is that you should be preserving political subdivision boundaries, then many political subdivisions that were intact under the old map will remain intact in a single district under the new map. And, and that's totally fine. Um, uh, but. The idea is that map makers, they shouldn't um, prioritize continuity with the prior map. Instead, they should be making contemporary judgments about where lines should be drawn given today's um, community dynamics, given the populations today of different political subdivisions, given today's demographics, rather than letting decisions that were made in the past under one set of circumstances uh, outlive their usefulness.
0: So it's giving mapmakers in some ways more freedom?
1: Well, you know, I want to be a little bit careful here about, about more freedom because here's what I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want to suggest that a fresh start should mean uh, that this is an excuse for opportunistic map makers to try to undertake a fresh gerrymander. Right. So, you know, in many of the, uh, the, the places that are um, moving toward dynamic redistricting, they're doing so as part of broader redistricting reforms. So they're trying to take the redistricting process out of the hands of partisan actors or at least put some constraints on those actors. Uh, and as part of that process, they're, they're saying, you know, uh, don't prioritize continuity with the old map. Instead, you know, here's what you should do. You know, they, in some cases, in Arizona, for example, they actually have instructions on how the independent redistricting commission there should progress. Uh, you know, essentially, start in one corner of the state and draw districts from there. And uh, and so, you know, they really are uh, effectively prohibited from um, giving priority to uh, to prior redistricting decisions. And, you know, I, I tend to think that um, that those kinds of reforms um, can, can be uh, fairly effective. What
0: do you most hope readers take away from your article?
1: Well, you, you know, I think we've gotten at this already. You know, I, I would hope that they take away a sense that redistricting um, really can be and should be an opportunity to make our electoral system more responsive and dynamic. You know, we uh, in some ways are fortunate that uh, we do have laws that require this decennial revisiting of our electoral district lines. It provides an opportunity for updating. So we have districts that reflect current communities and current community needs, uh, and that you know can open the door to new voices, uh, new perspectives in our political process. And it, it is uh, to some extent a shame when we don't take advantage of that opportunity and instead redistricting is just uh, an excuse to, um, to tweak existing lines but largely perpetuate the past
0: where can researchers find more of your work
1: well uh you know they they can probably find it on on my ssrn page the uw law uh, repository of course is a place where my work can be found and i suppose you know wherever else fine legal scholarship is available
0: exactly emphasis on fine in this case i really appreciate (laughs) it and enjoyed your article and i thank you again for joining us on the podcast today Uh, We have been discussing Professor Yablon's recently published article, Jerry Laundering, published in the NYU Law Review. Again, you can find the full text of this article on SSRN, as Professor Yablon mentioned, and it'll be linked on our podcast page. Thank you all for listening. For complete listing Professor Yablon's work, visit the University of Wisconsin Law School Repository. Find these links in all our previous podcasts at wilawandaction.law.wisc.edu. Stay up to date on Wisconsin Law School Scholarship by subscribing to this podcast via the Apple iTunes Store or follow either at Wisconsin Law or at UW Law Profs on Twitter for updates and news on faculty publications. See you next time. Happy research.